Praying the impossible. Praying the impossible. We're going to go to 1 John. And then we're going to go back into Daniel chapter 9. It's kind of an extension of what we were dealing with last week. open in prayer. Father, we come before you, my Lord, and I thank you with all my heart. Help us, my Lord, this day. Help us every day that we awaken. Help us not fall short of your grace. The grace that you have given to each one of us. Help us not to make the same mistakes that that the children of Israel made. They came so close to the borders of blessing. They came so close to the borders of the of the supernatural, and they drew back, and they died in the desert. They were so close. Help us, my Lord God, to lift up our voices in a way that your disciples did of years of old. When they cried out, increase our faith, Lord. Increase our faith. Father, you've got to help us, because we can only believe just so much. You've got to open up hearts and minds and reveal and touch and lead. You must, my Lord. Give us the ears that we might hear. Give us the eyes that we might see, my Lord God. Enable us, my Lord. Enable us so that our minds can really be enlightened, my Lord, through your word. That we can fully embrace it. Let our hearts embrace it. Let our beings be transformed by it. Father, I'm asking that you'll take this church farther than we've ever gone before. Sounds like a Star Trek kind of thing, Lord, but I ask that you'll do that. That we can take and become all you call us to be and possess blessing, my Father, that others might come to know you as Lord and Savior and that you might be glorified. But that truly should be our prayer this day, my Lord, that you might be glorified. You be glorified, Lord, that reverence would be once again given unto your name. Let it begin here, Lord. Because I'm tired of your name being thrown around in such a casual way if your name is, is worthless. I'm asking that your name be glorified one more time. Do something so profound in our lives, Lord, that, that those around us will have to say, hey, you know what? He loves, the Lord loves them. We want to come to know this Lord as well. Give us the grace, Lord, to believe in the faith, to pray like we have never prayed before. But Lord, I understand through Scripture that you're not, you're not into empty words. It's the heart, Lord. It's the cry of the heart. It's the cry of the heart. So look into our hearts, that we might have hearts of faith. My Father, I pray that when we open our mouths, our mouths will be filled with praise, that you'll be glorified in the midst of our lips. So Father, I pray that as a body, as this church, Father, gathers together to wield our bodies to your purpose and yield our minds and our hearts to that purpose, that you might be glorified. Do it sovereignly, Lord. Do it supernaturally. Do it as you please. And let us be willing to follow your lead. Do whatever you want, Lord. And let us never see things as being impossible. But let us always call it what you see it as. And embrace. I ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Title of the message, Praying the Impossible. Praying the Impossible. I want to read something to you in opening scripture here, which actually can knock your socks off because it's pretty neat. Here's what... I mean, this could be an explosion of faith in your own heart. Here's what it said. Scripture says, I found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. When the king heard the words of the law, he what? Wow. You talk about a reverence for the word of God. The word of God was found in the temple of the Lord. Now, it was hidden for some reason. It was hidden, but when the king said, when I heard the words of the Lord, I just tore my my garments. Tore my garments. And I want you to remember something that this is so important, that the law, the book of law, verse 18, was discovered after the people were called back to worship the true God. When the people were called back to worship the true God and they responded in doing that, then the word of God, the book of the law was revealed. It had always been around. It had always been around, but it was hidden. 
I'll tell you what, as I go back through scriptures and I see it over and over again, the Lord, the Lord knows that if a generation that he's dealing with at the time is not going to listen to the word of God, then he'll hide the word until an appropriate time. Otherwise, what would happen is the word would be there, be presented, and people would read it, but their hearts would become hardened to it and callous to it and not respond to it. And so he'll hide it away, remove it from their sight, until finally the people are called back and respond to the desire of calling and worshiping and glorifying his name. First John chapter 5, verse 12 through 16 says this, He who has the Son has life, but he who does not have the Son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. I'm going to say this slowly now, verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to His will, He what? Hears us. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of Him. Folks, that's amazing to me. Of course, the Scripture, we always talk about this. Anytime we, we say the Lord's going to answer prayer as our request is made, it's always according to His will. Always according to His will. And having that desire to pray according to His will, what is His will for us as a child of God? What is His will for us as a church? As believers. We'll get into that as the message continues. Daniel chapter 9, let's go back to passage in text that we were looking at last week. And I want you to note here that Daniel, verse says to, that Daniel understood from the Scriptures according to the word of the Lord given to Jeremiah the prophet that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Now, of course, we talked about this last week, so this is kind of a carryover from last week. I'll tell you something. The Scripture here says Daniel understood from the Scriptures. That means Daniel was not a casual seeker. He saw something that a casual seeker would not have seen. Daniel was a man who sought sought God's heart. He was a man who sought after the Lord. He was a man that was determined to live in the right relationship with God. Because living in the right relationship with the Lord meant that he was going to be living in the right relationship with those around. If our relationship with those around is kind of iffy, then our relationship with the Lord is not where it needs to be. But Daniel was one that sought the Lord and was determined to live in that right relationship. Now, others had access to the same scriptures that Daniel had. But for Daniel, suddenly the Lord opens up the Scriptures and Daniel sees deep into the Scriptures and he understands something. He understands that a doorway was about to open. There was an opening coming to the children of Israel. That those years, those 70 years are about ready to come to an end and there was going to be a change. That the Lord was going to do something spectacular. In fact, Daniel understood that in the very short period of time, a door would be open, and all those who wanted to return were the, back to the place where God's true blessing and purpose would be found would be able to get back into that place. There's a spiritual principle there too, that each one of us as a church, I believe there's an open door before us, and I believe all those who have a desire to get back to where, where the true blessing of God will be found will have that opportunity to, one more time, go into that place. And so when, when Daniel read the scriptures that Jeremiah had written, he was determined that yes, it was now. That the Lord had determined a time, a time to actually end the discipline of His people because of their carelessness of handling the word that discipline was coming to an end and they were going to have an opportunity to return back into the very presence, the power of, of the king. Daniel wrote this in verse 9. He said, O Lord, the Lord God is merciful and, and forgiving, even though we have... This is interesting. Pay attention to what Daniel's praying here. Daniel's saying, even though we have rebelled against you, we have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws He has given us through His servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away, refusing to obey. Daniel says, be merciful, Lord even though we have rebelled against you. See, the children of Israel, they had the presence of God. They had the Word of God. But they got caught up in the prosperity of things. They got caught up in the blessing, what God could do for them. 
And as a result of that, they became bored with the simplicity. The simplicity of going to the temple week after week after week. Offering up the same sacrifices again and again and again. All these things which the Lord had clearly had laid out. They were tired of the prayers. Even being answered, they were tired of ministering to the stranger. God had established that when He established the, the temple. When He came down and manifested His presence so so clearly, so thickly, that the folks just couldn't even breathe because His presence was so strong. And there He would declare, this is my house. My house should be a house of prayer. His desire was so that when the people would come into the, the house of prayer, their prayers would be answered. And because the, He was answering their prayers, His name would be revered through all the earth. But history reveals that the caretakers, the people of God, the caretakers of His house, the temple, become utterly careless with what had been given to them. They had taken things for granted. They had become bored with the simplicity of God's love. And I started thinking, you know, the parallel is there for us to be careful because you and I also can become careless today. Because today, we have read through Scriptures week after week. We've seen it, and I've touched on it. We've studied it. That you and I are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And it's easy for us, being the temple of the Holy Ghost, to become careless with the things that God has revealed to us. To become careless and casual with the things of God. And because of that, Israel would be destroyed. Because of that, Israel, the Lord would allow Israel's enemies to come and overpower them and take them into captivity. So now the temple lays destroyed and the city's in ruin. And the very testimony of God's in shambles. And so the question is, who will free these captives? Will the name of the Lord ever be restored? These captives of the society, captives of prosperity, captives of the world around them, will they be set free? And the name of the Lord be restored? It seemed like such a hopeless and impossible situation. And then in the midst of it all, the Lord opens up Scripture. Daniel's seeking. In the midst of it all, like the Scriptures come alive and begin to, to lift before him this incredible promise that a door was being opened. A moment was coming. And what would seem impossible to the natural mind. I mean, how could it happen? How in the world? They were captive. They were captive by a superior army and, and, and a power and, and what were they were being controlled by this power the, the greatest power of the known world at that time they've been taken captivity into captivity Babylonians and now the Medo Persians were also had committed and conquered Babylon and, and here's these people children of God are, are captive at this point and, and the people who have conquered Babylon they're not the kind of people that are known for kindness the king was not a king that they could walk up to and say, hey, you know what? Please let us go back and, and rebuild the temple of our God and that, that He might be glorified on earth and declare Him to, to be more powerful than you are. He was just not the kind of king to say, oh yeah, go ahead and do that. And so there was no way in their hearts and minds in the natural that these people would ever be some sympathetic to the things of God. But Daniel read the Scripture. And Daniel saw a door being opened. And he sees it in the Scriptures. That's important. You know, there's a lot of folks through the years who have come up to me and say, you know, I heard the voice of God. I heard God speak. I haven't heard, <laughs> I haven't heard many voices lately. Praise God for that. I probably in the future I'm going to be, but at this point I'm not hearing a lot of voices. But God does speak. He speaks to me through His Word. And I figure that's always the better way to be. I'm always suspicious when one says, well, God told me. Did he really? Good. What about his word? Did he speak to you through his word? God was speaking to, to Daniel through his word. That's how he speaks. Because as you go through the scriptures and you step back and begin to read the scriptures, you'll see that he's already made an open, plain declaration of who he is and what he's going to do and what he intends to do. It's there. No surprises. I go back into Revelation chapter 3, and there's the, the church of Philadelphia. In verse 7, he writes to the angel, the church of Philadelphia, he writes these things. Write these words to him, who is holy 
These are the things, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no man can shut, and what he shuts, no man can open. Look at verse 8. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you a what? An open door that no one can shut. Now, you know the story, and you know the account of Revelations. We go through the seven churches, and there are those who believe that as a church age right now, we are in the age of Philadelphia. An open door placed before us. The Laodicean church is the last church, the church of the last day. And I do believe that we're right there on that cusp between Philadelphia and Laodicean church. But he says to the Philadelphian church, I have placed before you an open door that no man can shut. I know that you have little strength. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. Notice verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, and I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my commandments to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of the trial that is going, on, is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live in the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what I have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write his name. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Verse 8 says, he said, I know, talking to the church now, he said, I know that you have little strength, but what, what was the key here? You've kept my word. You've not denied my name. He said, I am going to set before you an open door and no one will be able to close it. He said, because of this, he says, because you've done these things, you've kept my word, been faithful, though you have little strength, he said, I'm telling you that the false religions, the religionists, now, when you go back to Scripture and, and it talks about the, the synagogue of Satan, it's not like these were demon people who were actually worshiping Satan. No, because he describes them. Notice how he describes them. They are religious people. They are people, he says, goes on, who claim to be Jews. So it's not like these are Satan worshipers. These are actually religionists. These are individuals who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof. He considers them part of the synagogue of Satan. Whoa. Wow. He said, I'm going to cause these religionists, these, those who claim the name of Christ, who say they're followers of myself. He said, but I'm going to cause them, I'll force them to bend their knees because of what I'm about to do for you. He said to the church of Philadelphia, to those who have been concerned about, now he's talking to those who have been concerned about the, about honoring God, who have not denied the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who have stayed true to biblical Christianity. He says, I'm going to give you an open door. You've had a relationship with me. The door is open to you. But, verse 9, he goes on to say, those who have not been true, they're going to have to bow before your feet, he said. They're going to have to acknowledge that I love you. In other words, he's saying, I'm going to do something so powerful in your lives, so supernatural, I'm going to do it one more time. Just like was done in the book of Acts when 3,000 individuals come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Those religionists had to bow at the feet of the 120 that were in the upper room. And not many people would understand, but that was always God's plan in the very beginning. As I said in the beginning of the message, God always has a plan. And it always comes, that plan is always revealed to those who truly seek Him. And He reveals it through His Word. God is always looking to do the impossible. He'll always do the impossible to those who have true, a true seeking heart. You know, back into the book of Daniel, when Daniel received this information, that there was going to be an open door, that the 70 years was coming to an end. What did he do with the information? The desolation of Jerusalem had lasted for seven years. And the people had forsaken God. They had forsaken His Word. They had forsaken His temple. That's the reason why they're in the mess they're in. What did he do? When God revealed that, he did what he always did. What he was accustomed to do. He began to pray. Verse 3 says, he turned to Lord God and 
pleaded with him in prayer and petition and fasting. And what? Sackcloth and ashes. When Daniel saw in the word of God the truth there with God's plan and purpose, he set his faith to see it happen. He said, yes, Lord, you revealed it. Now it must happen. And he set his faith to see it happen. He went to the throne of God. And he does something in the next few verses, which is kind of interesting. Now I want to go back to the fact that Daniel was a righteous man. I want you to understand that Daniel was not responsible, was not personally responsible for the suffering that he was enduring. Daniel had not brought the mess that Israel is in. He did not bring that upon the nation. When, when Israel was, was, was carried off into Babylon, he was just a young man. He had nothing to do with it. He was castrated, made a eunuch in the Babylonian king's court. He had nothing to do with any of this. He was innocent. And in fact, all the things that were most important to a Jewish boy, family, etc., is gone from him. He has no chance of a family now, no chance of any kind of relationship. He's been taken into captivity and he's just suffering this incredible hardship and pain in a place because of the casual handling of the truth of God by other people. He wasn't personally responsible. Yet he wasn't bitter. And what he does in the prayer, he includes himself with those who were, who had been justly judged. He prays. I pray, Lord, my God, and confess, O Lord, the great and awesome God, he said, who keeps his covenant of love to all who love him and obeys his command. We, verse 7, he says, we, verse 5, we have sinned and done wrong. He's righteous. He didn't cause any of this. Why is he including himself with this? He says, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commandments and your law. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets who spoke in your name to our kings and our priests, our princes and our, our fathers and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. He didn't say, Lord, look what they have done. They screwed up big time, and that's the reason why we're here, and they are being justly judged, Lord. And I thank you for your love and your faithfulness and your faith and your forgiveness, but you know what? Wow, they made a mess out of this. He didn't. He says, we casually handled your word. We walked away from what was true, what we knew once was true. You know, it reminds me, his prayer reminds me of Christ on the cross. Jesus was a very righteous man, we know that. Obviously, he's the Son of God. He had not been personally responsible for the mess that the world had come to. He not responsible for the mess humanity was in. But he includes himself with those who were justly judged when he went to the cross. And so I thought about that. You and I also have a responsibility. Not just to pray for ourselves, but to go beyond that. Because we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You know, if the Lord came in our midst, if He literally came into our midst today, if His manifest glory was felt in this sanctuary, there's not one of us could stand. That's the truth. Because there's so many areas in our lives, in every one of our hearts, we have fallen short of God's glory. No matter how long we've served the Lord, no matter how much we pray, no matter how much we fast, no matter what we say, we've all fallen short of His glory. And we could not stand in His presence. Daniel goes on to say, I pray to the Lord my God and confessed, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps His covenant of love with all who love Him and obey His commandments. We have sinned. Not they have sinned. We have sinned. Daniel said, God, God, we have sinned. We've sinned when we left the simplicity of Your Word and started thinking in our own way. Started thinking our way through life. Trying to come up with all kinds of ideas and thoughts. Humanism. 
We started coming up with certain formulas and theories and that did not come from your word. We started applying the world's philosophies to our relationships. We got caught up in the goings-ons of our time. We caught up in stuff that didn't come from your word. We've sinned and we stopped listening and living in confidence of who we are before you. Verse 7, he goes on to say, he says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The men of Judah and the people of Israel and all the people of Jerusalem and all of Israel, both near and far, and all the, all the countries where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. Daniel's making a confession. He's confessing we are the people of God. But somehow we've been marginalized. Somehow we've lost our authority. We've lost that appeal. We've lost something, Lord, in the midst of all of this. And we've been taken captive by the forces beyond our control. We are your people, my Lord, but we have, we have succumbed to the pressures. We've succumbed to the principles of our world. And as a result of that, our authority as a church has been minimized. It's been marginalized. Your glory is not being seen as it should be. Verse 9, he goes on to say, Oh Lord, be merciful and forgiving. He said, be merciful and forgiving. Even though we have rebelled against you. We haven't obeyed your voice. We haven't walked in your ways. Verse 11. You know, you go back to Deuteronomy. Back to the law of Moses. And there was a command. There's a relationship that occurred there within God. And he says, you shall not prosper in your way. You shall be oppressed and plundered continually. And no one shall save you. You shall walk because you have casually handled the Word of God. Because, And if you go back into Deuteronomy, you'll hear what Moses was talking about the law. And because you've not fulfilled it, because you've not brought it forth in a way and allowed the circumstances around you to control you, he says, you're not going to prosper. You're not going to strive. You're not going to succeed. I'm talking, of course, obviously today in a spiritual sense. And Daniel goes on in verse 12. He goes, You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us this great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like this. What was done to Jerusalem. Just as written in your law, as you spoke in Deuteronomy, all the disaster came upon us, yet we did not... You know, this is the point that I always see. People will say, you know, when things get tough enough, when things get really hard, when people at the bottom, somehow they'll come back to the Lord. Well, look what, 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 what Daniel's saying. He said, all the disasters come upon us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God. Let's never think the idea that, oh, when it gets really worse, really bad for someone, then they'll come to know Jesus. That is not true. My experience is, this, is that when they hear the word and it gets bad, they hear the word and it gets bad, it gets worse and worse. The hearts become harder and harder. He said, we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God, by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. And he said, this came on us. And when it came on us, we didn't turn to you, Lord. We failed to come back to the truth. And we can think about ourselves as a nation. We sing, God bless America. And we turn and walk. We walk away and we don't listen or obey his voice. The Lord is our God. He is a righteous God in all of his works. We have to acknowledge this. We have to acknowledge this when we pray for our own country. We pray for our families and our friends. We have to acknowledge this. When we go before the throne of God, we are not to put ourselves before the throne of God. And we're, not, we're not to come before the throne of God and present ourselves like we're the solution to the problem. Well, we're the solution. We're having a hard time and everybody else is the problem. Sometimes we pray with that kind of attitude. I'm like everybody else is the problem, Lord, you've got to change their hearts. Daniel didn't do that. Daniel went before the Lord and said, Lord, has anyone, this is basically what he was saying, Lord, has anyone here in your sight done everything they're supposed to have done? Has anyone in, the, has anyone in this place 
than everything we should be in Christ. I started thinking, <laughs> this analogy, because it works well. We're kind of like the junkyard that God stored His treasure in, basically. He, he stores his, the treasure of His Son inside of us. We're just junkyards. Amen? And, and I started going back a little bit because the Scripture reveals to us that when it comes to the proud, what does God do? He what? He opposes the proud. So if I come and present my case before the Lord, and it sounds like I'm okay, and they're the ones that got to be changed, what am I demonstrating? I'm demonstrating pride. And the Lord's going to oppose my prayer. Because I'm not humble before Him. I'm assuming that everything's alright. And Daniel's saying, no, it's not. We have. A righteous man who seeks the Lord, he's crying out saying, Lord, we have. We have. We have. Nobody, Lord, here in your sight has been and done what they should have done. No one. Many appeals. Now he makes an appeal to God. He makes an appeal which really matters. Listen to what he says. Now, O Lord, our God, who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand, who made yourself a name that endures to this day. This is very important about his name. He goes, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Verse 16, O Lord, in keeping with all of your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. Our sins and iniquity of our fathers have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all around us. And here's the key. This is the key which turns it all around. This turns, or this is the key to prayer. This is the key to prayer for our own personal lives. And this is where faith comes into Daniel's heart. He said, I'm not praying. And I'm not bringing anything of my own to you, my Lord. I'm not saying, Lord, this is what you should do. I'm not telling you what is the right thing for you to do. But I am praying, Lord, for your holy name's sake. Because your name is at stake in this, Lord. Not me. Your name. You are the God who brought us out of captivity. You're the one who brought us into an inheritance so that your name should be glorified. And once it was, but because we've become careless with your name, your name's been cast down. And people don't reverence your name. They use it in a way that is not fitting. Your name, he says, Daniel says. And this is important. He's bringing himself before the Lord. He's crying out. He's saying, your name has become a reproach among the people. And I would say, this should be our humble appeal. Jesus, for your name's sake, Lord, revive us again. Not so that we can be blessed. Not so we can have the promises. Not so that we can feel good or we can fill the place. No, no. You need to revive us again for your name's sake. Bring us back to life. For your glory. We should be simply appealing for the glory of His name. We should be appealing for the honor of His name. One more time. Lord, one more time in history. Let Your name be glorified so people won't scoff any longer. They'll tremble before Your name. So one more time, at the name of Jesus, knees will bow. And tongues will confess. That should be our prayer. And I would say that is the reason why we're here. It's not to be set free from the strongholds in our lives, not to have a better life, not to have answers around. No, no, no. We're here that He might be glorified. And that's in keeping with Christ's prayer. He said, Father, glorify Your name. And the voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified. And I will glorify it again. That's the mission. That's the mission of the church. That's the mission. That's the mission of the decor. It's the mission of the youth. It's the mission of everything. The web page of everything that we do. Our mission is that He might be glorified. Not that we might fill this place. Not that we might attract people. But that He might be glorified. That's the mission 
That was Christ's mission, and that's the mission of the church. That his name might be glorified. And let me go back to where we started in 1 John chapter 5, because there's a verse here that's kind of important here. Remember I said, we read it slowly, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. What is His will? That He might be glorified. And if we know that He hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what he, we ask of Him. If anyone sees His... Now, here's verse 16 now. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin and does not lead, that does not lead to death, he should pray that God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. But it's verse 16 that I want you to pay attention to. He said that if anyone sees their brother commit a sin, it's interesting too because you look up the word brother, it doesn't just simply mean people in the church. It's also talking about folks outside, part of humanity. This is important. He said, if you see a brother, if you see someone who's committing sin, who's not bringing glory unto God, because that's the desire of the Lord, then we should pray for them. Even though the situation might look impossible, we should pray that God would give them life. Now, the majority of people around us have not sinned the, the sin unto death. That's sin that leads to death. The sin unto death is actually the sin where you can't hear the voice of God anymore. It's over. You can't hear it anymore. You're, you're hardened towards it. And you don't want to hear the voice of God. And once in a while you run to people like that. They just don't want to know. They don't want to hear. That's it. Forget it. Shut it down. But I do believe there are many people who want to hear the voice of God. I believe there's a lot of folks outside these four walls who have an inner hunger to know what is right. To know the voice of God. To know the truth. There's a whole lot of folks that want that. And that's where we come in, folks. You and I have a promise. The promise that if we ask for our brothers, if we ask for our our fellow human beings, church members, but those around us, we ask. We ask for those who that God once knew God and have backslidden. We ask for those who are outside of God's desires for his, their lives. We are to pray for them, Lord. Father, give them life. That includes our neighbors, our family members, those around us, Lord, give them life. You know, when we talk about the word death, the word death literally means in the original, means cut off from the refreshing influence of God. Father, when we look at people around us, we see that they're cut off from that refreshing influence of God. We pray, Lord, bring them back to life. Bring them to life, Lord. I don't know what their past is. I don't know what their experience has been with religion. I don't know, Lord. But Father, bring them back to life. See, if you see your brother cut off from God, ask him, give him life. If you see your neighbor, your man, your family member, cut off, Father, bring them back. Give them life for your glory's sake, Lord. Because we have a moment in history where God is saying, my people, I'm setting before you an open door, not just for yourselves, but for others. If you'll simply ask in faith, stand upon the promises of my written word and ask for your brother. You know, as you go through, and you look at America today, there's a lot of churches that are almost empty. And they have very little influence. But I still believe there are people willing to hear the word of God. And I know that in many cases it might look like there's a cemetery there going on, you know. A cemetery, but a cemetery doesn't mean anything to our God. He's able to bring life out of the grave. And that's who we serve. Who? That's who Christ is. And if history hasn't taught us anything, it should teach us that in his mercy, he wants to bring us back to a place where, where he's the only one that can make a difference. Remember, remember Lazarus? Lazarus dies. He lets Lazarus die. He lets Martha quote all kinds of scriptures, all the scriptures she wants. He lets Mary fall and weep at his feet. He waits until the situation is so totally hopeless and then he comes in and does what only God can do. 
He brings his own name to reputation. He brings his name so his name might be glorified. History will teach us over and over and over again. There's, you know, there's 135,000 people coming against the nation of Israel. And God calls a young man called Gideon, right? And he initially starts off with 20,000 people or so to fight against. And the Lord says, nope, nope, the odds, the odds, the odds are just too high for you, Gideon. We gotta bring the numbers down. We gotta give the enemy a fighting chance, you know? So he brings them down. The odds are too much, Gideon. <laughs> 300, let's bring it down to 300, 300 to 135,000. And then he gives Gideon this ridiculous plan to take a natural torch, put it in a, uh, in an earthen vessel, and I want, John, I want you to stand. I want you to stand on this mountainside, and I just want you to smash the thing, amen, and let the torch light shine, and just yell the sword of the Lord and the sword of Gideon, and do it all one time. He does it all that his name might be brought. Bring glory to his name. See a theme here? Everything we should do is set up to what? Bring glory to his name. And we've gotten away from that. He waits till Daniel's in the lion's den, the stone's put on, stone's put on top, and the king seals it. He also, the Lord seals the mouths of the lions and to what? Bring his bring glory to his name. He waits until the three Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, right? All wrapped up in flames before he appears and delivers them out. All that his name might be glorified. History will teach us over and over and over again that Jesus Christ brings glory to his name when there can't be any other way. And when we acknowledge there can't be any other way. We're living in the time right now. There's no other way. As a whole, the church in America has has tried all the strategies. We try all kinds of strategies to bring people in, right? We get the big name personalities. The guys write the books. Get the big church and all the kinds of things that attract people, right? We get it all together. We go on television, on radio. We do all we can possibly do. And all what has happened is the church has produced a generation of death. It created what I call as a Lazarus result. The Lazarus effect. That's what we've created through our efforts. When Lord Jesus Christ is willing to do so much more, He's willing that His name might be glorified once again. And the greatest thing that you and I can do today is not come up with another program, another plan, but simply come up with a heart of prayer that agrees with our God. That we've made a mess of His testimony. You know, this nation should be crying out, should be singing Amazing Grace every single Sunday. Instead of the the streets being empty, right, right, empty on a Sunday morning, the streets ought to be jam-packed. There ought to be traffic jams with people trying to get to the house of God. I mean, it's that way throughout the week. People, traffic jams, people trying to get to a place where they can make more money, they can become prosperous, they they can plan for their future, they can cut the deal. The highways are just jam-packed, traffic jams during that time. They should be on Sunday morning to come to give Him glory. That's not the case. So our cry should be, Father, we have failed. We have sinned. We have, we have treated Your Word casually. We have, we have taken Your name and we have made it worthless. We don't revere Your name. History has taught us as well that at critical moments like these, He's always had a people, a remnant, to take hold of the truths. Now, I can imagine Daniel coming to some of the folks close to his associates saying, look, you know, God's about to release us. And there'd always be people heard the message, and they would simply say, yeah, right, okay, mm-hmm. you understand, the city is destroyed, and, and we are captive, There's nothing, it's hopeless, because they can't see the hand of God. I want to tell you something, folks live there, but I don't want to live there. I don't want to live where I just figure a place is hopeless, a situation is It's destruction. We can't do anything about it. No. See, there'll always be some people who are going to come to the shores of the incredible promise of God, but all they'll see is the giants. They're brought by the Word of God to the very edge of a miraculous victory in their lives, but they they choose to see the giants. They choose to see the impossibility. They, they, they choose to listen to the number crunchers and all those other voices telling them that it, it can't be done. All those voices that are apart from God. No, too far gone. It's hopeless. 
Matthew chapter 5. There was a, a ruler in the synagogue whose daughter was dying. He goes to Jesus. He says, my daughter is dying. Can you please help me? Please come. And the scripture reveals that as Jesus is making his way there, the message comes back and says, no, nope, forget it. She's dead. She died. Don't waste your time. She's already gone. There will always be this word come to you when Jesus is coming to do a miracle. When he's coming to do something in your life, in your home, in your relationship, family, community, some charge will come up and say, don't worry about it. It's too late. Too forget it. Get rid of it. But this word came. The word came, the daughter's dead. And the word will come to you when you're in a situation where you need God to move in. But all of a sudden, the word will come. Forget it. Don't go to your prayer closet. Don't speak. It's all over. It's too late. Just kind of suck it up and deal with it. But Jesus turned to the man and said, it's not too late. Are you serious? He said, as he goes to the house, he sees all the turmoil there and all the weeping and the ailing and all that stuff and the law of hopelessness is there and the loss of the dreams and the visions and all that. The people are crying out. And he goes there. It's like he's gone to a foreign nation, not his own people. He's, these are people crying out. They're supposed to be Jews. They're supposed to be people who know God. House of faith. He says, why all the commotion? Why all the wailing? Child's not dead. She's sleeping. And scripture says, they all started laughing. Oh, 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 you're kidding me, right? She's dead. I'm telling you, folks, church isn't dead. Not the church of God. Not the church of Christ. Not the church of the living God. It's not dead. It's just sleeping. Maybe dead to the natural eye. But she can still hear the voice of God. And Jesus spoke to her. He spoke to her. She could still hear him. Just like he spoke to Lazarus. When he said, Lazarus, come forth. He spoke to him. God is able to speak to whoever can still hear. He spoke to her. And the greatest thing that... (laughs) It could ever happen. She would come forth and he would receive the glory. And here's what starts. Here's where we have to start. We have to start by getting up and facing our impossibility. Wherever the devil has put our mind and our circumstances tells it can't happen. I know it's hard. But if you can't believe in yourself, in that sense, knowing the word of God, who he is, then you're never going to be able to believe for others. If you can't believe that God has touched your life and saved you and called you and to bring glory unto His name, if you can't believe that God's purpose for your life, then you're never going to be able to pray that for anybody else. God has set before us an open door. We can go through that door. And we'll go through it certainly and suddenly as soon as we begin to realize that all things are possible to those who believe. Suddenly the the miraculous will start to unfold. The miraculous starts to unfold in your heart, in your mind, and you become a force to be reckoned with the kingdom of God. Because you'll know something that the casual observer of God will not know anything about, cannot see. You'll know that he's able to change everything and anything and bring victory into any situation. And you realize suddenly that God has been good to you. And you'll start praying for your brothers, those around you, start praying for every person. And suddenly, and suddenly you'll realize that there's no limit to what God can do. And your prayer will be, Jesus, glorify your name. You've glorified it before, glorify it again. Call these people out of darkness, call them out of death. Clarify your name, Lord Jesus. That's what you'll do. And that'll be the thrust of the church. Understand, not everybody's going to respond. We talk in Acts chapter 4 that there were 3,000 that came, but there were scoffers there too. People rejected. They made fun of. So there will always be those who will scoff. But for you and I, our purpose is that God, the Lord's name will be glorified. And we don't worry about the scoffers. We focus on the 3,000 the kingdom of Jesus and the miracles that would occur in their lives, the transformation that would occur in their lives because he truly is a waymaker. And we're going to have a call to call in a few moments and I just want us to simply pray. I want us to pray for everybody. <laughs> I want us to start, you know, We've got to be willing to pray that God's grace might minister. 
We have that open door. We come to the altar and say, Lord, I want you to glorify your name, Lord. We're not coming to the Lord with any kind of plan, any kind of petition. We're not coming with our goodness. We're not trying to set ourselves above anyone else. We're just not. We're saying, Lord, I'm not coming to you. I'm not asking you to do this because I prayed or because I fasted. I'm coming, Lord, that your name might be glorified. And folks, I believe with all my heart, that's the key to victory. But when you and I believe with all our heart and our desires that he might be glorified, that's the key to answered prayer. That's the key for the miraculous. And once you begin to pray that way and see God in that way, there'll be an explosion of faith that comes into your mind. And you'll be able to see things that others cannot see. And you'll experience that God truly is the way maker. God who raises the dead is the one who gives life. But our desire is that all might come to know him. He might be glorified. That's the reason. Revive us again that you might be glorified. Father, we come before you right now as get ready for the altar service. And Father, I pray that I pray that we'll understand you've spoken from you've spoken us to to us from your throne. And so many of us, Lord God, are at this junction of faith. We've got to go beyond. Beyond the typical day in day out activities to recognize your kingdom authority, kingdom purpose, our desire to bring glory unto your name in all things. Revive us for those reasons, Lord. Give us the courage and the faith that we might need, that we need today, that we can trust you for our tomorrow and for the next. Fill this place. That your name might be glorified. Revive us once again. So that your name might be glorified. And others might recognize the love you have for us. Not because of anything we have done. But because of who you are. And our desire to honor you in all we do. Father, I ask all this in your precious name. The Son's son's precious name. In the name of Jesus. Amen. And amen. And amen. May God be glorified. Let's come before the altar and seek him. Amen. May the Lord be glorified.